Well, good morning. My name is Greg. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here at Midtown Community Church, which still feels freaking awesome to be able to finally say uh, welcome to Midtown Community Church um, for our sermon series for the first few weeks of the life of our new church. We're going through our mission, our vision, and our values. We're going to be asking questions like, who are we? Why are we here? Where are we going? What are we about? Um, and so our vision statement, as, uh, as you probably have heard before, is... Wait a minute. I got this fancy new clicker. There it is. We exist to see the weak, the wounded, and the wayward of Midtown Harrisburg encounter the living Jesus. Now, last week, we zoomed in on the, the phrase just Midtown, and we talked about why should we plant a church here in Midtown? Why does Midtown need a church? Why are we here? And this week, we're going to be zooming in on the phrase weak, wounded, and wayward. And we're going to be asking, why is Jesus, the, the rabbi of Nazareth that lived 2,000 years ago, why is he the right guy to point weak, wounded, and wayward people to? What makes him unique in his ability to deal with and accept weak, wounded, and wayward people? Um, and to do that, we're going to be looking at Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. If you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles in the pew, it should be on page 1063. And as you're flipping there, uh, I would like to tell you a story. So when I was in high school, we were assigned the book Animal Farm to read by George Orwell. And I remember just like slogging through this book, honestly, bored out of my mind, thinking to myself, like, as far as books with talking animals are concerned, this one's not one of my favorites. Like, Charlotte's Web seemed more interesting than that. And I remember sitting on the couch with my mom, voicing this opinion to her one afternoon, and it was then that she sat next to me on the couch and explained to me, Greg, this is an allegory. It's an allegory. And I was blown away. Right, like up until then, I had thought that this was just a fun story with some talking animals who tried to take over a farm. Right, you mean to tell me that this entire time this has been about the Russian Revolution? And that like, that pig is Stalin? This book just got so much cooler. So I'm like, I can't wait to tell all my friends at school. Now all my friends at school were smarter than me and they already knew that. But I remember learning the true meaning of Animal Farm and what used to be to me a sad story about some evil pigs has now morphed into one of my favorite books of all time. Have you ever had one of those experiences where because of someone's explanation of a thing, that thing entirely changes and takes on a life of its own, right? That painting in the art gallery looks at first like you handed somebody a paintbrush and like a tab of acid and said, go at it. Until like the tour guide shows you the brilliance of like the artistic paint strokes and the exaggerated use of color and you're just blown away and captivated, captivated by genius. If I'm honest, most of the classical music that I hear sounds at first to my ears uh, like 
creepy elevator music. <laughs> Until someone explains to me how the strings work and the rhythmic adjustments throughout a piece. And then a whole new world is opened up. It's like walking through the wardrobe into Narnia. And that thing which was so boring at first takes on a life of its own. We all have these moments where the explanation and interpretation of a thing changes our entire perspective on the thing itself. And that is precisely what the author of Hebrews is doing here in our text today. Right? The book of Hebrews is the author kind of sitting down on the couch next to his audience, grabbing them by the hand and saying, hey, you know those sacrifices, high priests, temples, thrones? Let me tell you what those things are really about. Let me blow your mind. There is a grander reality to which these things point. They are a shadow of a substance, a blueprint to the building. And so this morning, we're going to listen in on this ancient conversation and show how it guides the vision of Midtown Community Church in the 21st century. So I, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Hebrews 4. Listen with open ears as I read again from this book that we love. This is God's word. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may find that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Will you pray with me? Father, show us anew your son this morning. I ask that you would make Jesus our great high priest, both realer than he's ever seemed to us and more unignorable than he's ever been. Captivate our minds with the beauty of Jesus. Lead us to him that in him we might find grace. Pray this in his name. Amen. So this morning we're going to talk through this text from three different angles. First, the blueprint. Second, the building. Third, the invitation. The blueprint, the building, and the invitation. Uh, first, the blueprint. Now, to modern ears, especially if you've not been like raised just totally immersed in church culture, language like the book of Hebrews about sin, high priests, and thrones can feel obscure, obsolete, and to be totally honest, like entirely irrelevant to our daily lives. A high priest, for example, to modern ears, conjures an image of like a weird old man with a beard and a cloak holding a staff, sort of like if Gandalf from Lord of the Rings went through an animal sacrificing phase. <laughs> but to the people initially reading the letter to the Hebrews, the high priest wasn't some far-off mythical figure. He was at the center of their life and the center of their religion. He was the main character in a story that they had been reenacting for thousands of years. See, for ancient people, illiteracy rates, for people like the Israelites, were incredibly high. 
Most scholars estimate that less than 3% of people in ancient Israel knew how to read, which compared to modern day is astonishingly low. Over 97% of people in ancient Israel didn't know how to read. And so you couldn't just hand somebody a Bible and expect the average Joe Schmo to be able to read it during his morning devotional time. Most people couldn't read. And so the way that Yahweh taught and trained his people was by giving all of Israel stories, rites, rituals, and ceremonies to reenact that would teach them about the universe, that would teach them about what God was like and what the plan that God had for his world was. Now, I'm well aware that the detailed description of the tabernacle is the place where many of our Bible reading plans go to die. Um, like how many pedantically precise instructions about like priests' garments could God possibly have us write down? But to ancient Israel, these weren't detailed rituals lulling them to sleep as they struggled to complete the Bible in a year. These were what made spiritual things come to life. To ancient Israel, they weren't just skimming the Bible as they like their eyes just glanced over detailed passages about how to sacrifice a lamb. No, they watched in horror as blood from the lamb's throat that had just been slit, that the lamb that they had raised as it died there in front of them, and they felt in their bones their need for a savior and the depth of their sin. These stories in the form of ceremonies were like blueprints that pointed to grander realities than themselves. And out of all of the stories that Israel rehearsed, out of all the ceremonies they performed, out of all the stories they reenacted, there was one that was most important. The central story for Israel, the high point of Israel's liturgical year was called the Day of Atonement. This was the ultimate blueprint in the life of Israel that pointed to the ultimate building. Here's how the Day of Atonement would go. So in the narrative of Israel, there was this person called the high priest. Right? This person was a spiritual guru. They'd have most of the books of the Bible memorized that they could just recite by memory. They had, ha- had to have character that was beyond reproach. And more than that, they had to be hand-selected by Yahweh himself, divinely appointed And it was this person, the high priest's job, to function as a representative to God on behalf of all the people. He was a mediator, an intercessor, a bridge between a holy God and a sinful people. Now this was necessary because in the mythology of Israel, ever since humanity had sinned, they had been banished from the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was a place where God's presence dwelt perfectly, not There was no sin to interfere with the presence of God where humans and God could live together. But ever since sin had entered the world, humans had been banished from the Garden of Eden and expelled from God's presence. Now this is crucial to understanding the story of the Day of Atonement. Because the big question for ancient Israel was not the question of our secular world today. They weren't concerned about whether or not God existed. Like, of course God existed. He's that pillar of fire that we're following at night. God exists. The question for ancient Israel was, how can sinful human beings get back into God's holy presence? God is holy, and we are sinners. How can we get back into his presence? 
And Yahweh comes along and says to them something that must have, upon initial hearing, sounded absolutely insane. He says, set up a miniature garden of Eden, and I'll tell you how to rehearse the story of how humans will re-enter. And so that's what Israel did. They set up a recreated miniature garden of Eden. They called this garden of Eden the tabernacle. The tabernacle was said to be a place where God's presence dwelt, just like it did in the Garden of Eden. The tabernacle is talked about and described and decorated like the Garden of Eden. And so if you're familiar with the descriptions of the tabernacle, there's this lampstand in the tabernacle that's meant to be decorated so it looks like a tree, like the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. There's a curtain on the outside of the tabernacle that is decorated with blue and purple, meant to symbolize a peaceful sky, like the peaceful sky that laid above the Garden of Eden. The priest's garments that they wore that are described in Exodus 28 are said to contain the same exact metals, like gold and onyx, as the Garden of Eden. And in the center of this recreated miniature Garden of Eden, there was this room called the Holy of Holies, This was the most concentrated area of God's presence. It was the place where heaven and earth met and where God's presence was white hot. You could think of the Holy of Holies as this miniature recreated Garden of Eden, almost like a spiritual umbilical cord where God's holiness and his presence flowed back into his creation. And to enter this Holy of Holies, there was a curtain with two cherubim, The cherubim are supernatural creatures that protect the throne of God woven into it. Two cherubim, just like the two cherubim that in Genesis 3 were placed to guard the way to the Garden of Eden. And so the the Day of Atonement would go like this. Once a year, the high priest, and only the high priest, because of the blood of an animal sacrifice, would enter through the curtain with the cherubim on it and re-enter this recreated Eden to be in God's presence again. The one priest would make a sacrifice to appease God on behalf of the people, and then he would leave the Holy of Holies. He would exit the Garden of Eden and do the same thing again the next year. And the next year. And the next year. And the next year. And the year after that. And the year after that. And you get the point. For thousands of years, God's people rehearsed this bizarre story of one person on behalf of all re-entering Eden. Re-entering the presence of God. For thousands of years, they performed this confusing ceremony that they didn't really know the meaning of. That's the blueprint. Israel's central ritual where one human re-entered Eden on behalf of all. And it's with this blueprint in mind that the author of Hebrews comes along thousands of years later, sits down on the couch next to his audience, grabs them by the hand and says, let me tell you what these things were really about. Let me show you the building that that was a blueprint for. And then he says this, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. So let us hold fast to our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The author of Hebrews comes along and says, Jesus is the building to which the blueprint of Old Testament high priests pointed. The high priests were the blueprint. Jesus is the building. Look again at what the author of Hebrews calls Jesus. He doesn't call Jesus a high priest. He calls him a great high priest. See, the term for high in high priest already literally just means great. And the author of Hebrews throws the Greek word megos, great, in front of it. Can everyone say megos? Megos. You can hear the prefix in English, mega, right? So to add that to the front of what already is great priest is to call Jesus a great, great priest. This is a superlative. This is no ordinary priest. He is a priest in a league of his own. He is the mega priest par excellence. But what makes this building of Jesus so different from the blueprint of these high priests? A few things. First, this new great high priest is sinless, right? Every other high priest to ever exist has had sin. And verse 15 tells us that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet with no sin. He was morally perfect. Think about that for a moment. Never once did Jesus of Nazareth have a sinful thought. Never once did he have a selfish inclination. Never once did he see that new thing that somebody else has and think to himself, like, I've got to have it. Never once did he see the attractive person going for a jog and take a second look. Never once did he lose his temper unjustifiably or swear under his breath at the idiots in the streets who must have missed all the donkey's driver ed courses. Never once did he gossip about a coworker behind their back. Never once did Jesus of Nazareth do all of the things that we do. He alone is fit to represent us before a holy God because he alone is as holy as that God is. Second, this high priest is not only sinless, he's sympathetic. Right? Lest we begin to think that because Jesus is perfect, that therefore he is unapproachable, lofty, far off, and aloof. The author of Hebrews says in verse 15, we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Think about that. Right? Jesus knows the pain of the paths that we walk because he has walked them first. When we talk about ourselves coming into this building here as weak, wounded, and wayward every week, we are talking about categories that Jesus himself knows better than we do. He knows these categories because he feels these categories. He knows what it's like to be weak because Jesus of Nazareth, our rabbi, has felt weakness in his bones. Our God in the flesh didn't come as Superman, he came as a normal human being. He depended as a child on his mother's breast milk. He, like every single one of us, has had to go through puberty. He had pimples on his face and a crack in his voice. He knows what it's like to get the flu. He knows what it's like to get to 3 p.m. on a Monday and just feel exhausted, burnt out like you can't go on. He knows what it's like to be tired, 
hungry, thirsty, overwhelmed, busy, stressed out, and weak. Think of your life and the weakness you feel in it right now. The heart of your sympathetic Savior is with you in it. Because of our great high priest, he feels what you feel. He is with you. He knows what it's like to be wounded. I mean, talk about a man that knows pain. He knows what it's like to be in excruciating physical pain, being tortured, beaten, scorned, weeping tears of blood. This is a man who suffered one of the most painful deaths known to man. But more than that, he knows the daily pain of torn relationships, shame and embarrassment, betrayal. He knows the emotional complexity of making friendships and how difficult finding good friends can be. He knows what it's like to be a part of a broken family where those who grew up sharing a bedroom can no longer share holidays. He knows what it's like to watch a best friend die and feel the grief and the sorrow and the anger that goes along with that. Think of your life and the woundedness that you feel in your life because we live in a broken world right now. The heart of your sympathetic Savior is with you also in that. So he knows what it's like to be weak. He knows what it's like to be wounded. The question before us would be, does he also know what it's like to be wayward? After all, Jesus didn't sin. How could he possibly sympathize and empathize with the temptations that we feel? He doesn't know what that's like. And the answer is, Jesus' sinlessness actually means that he knows temptation better than we ourselves ever could. Think about it. Because he is tempted and didn't succumb to temptation, he knows what it's like to be tempted all the way through to the end. C.S. Lewis talks about it uh, by using the analogy of a man walking into the wind. And he says, you find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A person who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only person who never yielded to temptation, is also the only person who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. So what temptations have you been facing? The heart of your sympathetic savior is also with you in those. He knows what it's like to be tempted and to withstand temptation. He is the one most fitting to pull us out of the pit of sin because he is the only one strong enough to not fall into the pit in the first place. So this is the building to which the blueprint pointed. An ultimate high priest who is thoroughly tempted but never sins who enters the Holy of Holies one time on behalf of all and who does so permanently, who is himself both the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice and who looks at us in our weak, wounded, and waywardness 
and can sympathize with us in all of those things. Perhaps the way that this high priest is most different than any high priest to precede him is the invitation that he offers us. So we've had the blueprint, the building, finally the invitation. Look at verse 16 with me. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Now, let me explain how insane this is, right? In the Old Testament, a high priest entering the Holy of Holies was an incredibly dangerous activity. This was the very presence of God, and we are sinners. We're not safe here. God is so unbelievably holy. We can't just waltz into his presence. And so it was customary for a high priest, when they would enter into the Holy of Holies, they would tie a bell around their ankle so that the people on the outside could listen for the bell and to tell if this high priest was still alive on the inside. And he would tie a rope around his foot so that if he was struck dead by the very presence of God, the people on the outside could pull him out without having to re-enter the Garden of Eden, the presence of God themselves. It wasn't safe. You can imagine the tension, the anticipation that people faced as they waited outside while the high priest entered into the Garden of Eden, the Holy of Holies. Like you can imagine them huddled outside the tent. The nervous glances, the fervent prayers. You can imagine the deafening silence as they crouched there listening for the sound of the bell. Will God be satisfied? Will he come out alive? And when the, when the high priest finally does reemerge, you can imagine the wave of relief that washes over people. Like God has accepted the sacrifice. For now, we are safe. We don't have to do this again until next year. But Jesus, as a great high priest, is different. He goes into the Holy of Holies and never comes out. Instead, we just hear a voice from inside the tent call out to us. Like, you can come in. It's okay. It's safe now. Re-enter Eden. Come approach the very throne of God with confidence because there is mercy and grace there. The weak, wounded, and wayward people need no longer huddle outside the tent, shaking in fear. We can come in with confidence because we have a great high priest who has advocated for us. That's the invitation before all of us this morning. Come to the throne of God with confidence because your great high priest has made a way. But I'm weak, you say. Like, I'm, I'm too exhausted and burnt out for religion. Good. Then kindly put your religion in the garbage and come to the throne where true rest is found. But I'm wounded, you say. Like, you have no idea how bad they hurt me or how fresh the cut still feels after all these years. I can't come to God in this condition, like, looking and feeling like this. Why not? 
Why not come to the one who can sympathize with you, the only one that truly knows how you feel, and the only one who longs and has the power to do something about it? But I'm wayward, you say. Like, you don't know the things that I've done or the shame that I feel, the sin that even now, like this week, has its ugly talons wrapped around my heart. I am a great sinner. I put on a moral front, but underneath I am a great sinner. Good. He is a greater savior. And when you come before the throne, there's no need to come posturing with a pre like conceived with a prepared explanation for why the sin that you did wasn't that bad or why you have a good excuse for why you did it and why it happened yet again. He knows it all anyway. And because of the work of our high priest, it is gone and you can walk before God, before his very presence with confidence. It is safe here. That's the invitation for all of us this morning. Not to try harder, start a new habit, pray more, read more, love better, care deeper, but simply to come before the throne, the very presence of God, with confidence because your great high priest right now this morning is inviting you in. And so to the weak who can't go on and need strength, to the wounded who are broken and long to be whole, and to the wayward who are lost and far from home. The invitation is to come into the presence of God because your great sympathetic high priest has made a way. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your heart for sinners is gentle and lowly Thank you that based on the merits of your son, you accept us without qualification. That we need not clean our lives up or posture or put a filter on anything that we've done, but simply come to you with faith and you accept us. As we continue in worship, would you engrave that truth on our hearts? Would you make us feel it in our bones that we are welcome right now before the throne in your very presence because of what our high priest has done for us. It's in his name and for his sake we pray. Amen.